Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, I'm Katherine Nichols, and this is Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week, our year is 1962, and we'll be talking about Helen Gurley Brown's Sex and the Single Girl. And I have two guests for this conversation. Uh, Samantha Allen is the author of Patricia Wants to Cuddle, that just came out in June of this year, and the Lambda Literary Award finalist, Real Queer America, LGBT Stories from Red States, um, and that's from 2019. Uh, and then Briellen Hopper is the author of Hard to Love, Essays and Confessions uh, from 2019, and Gilead Reread, forthcoming from Columbia University Press. Um, she also writes and teaches nonfiction. Uh, there's just going to be a lot more information about both of their work um, in the show notes on the website because there's, there's a lot. They both do a lot. Um, uh, anyway, so they um, both actually have essays in the new Sex and the Single Woman collection, um, which is essays by different writers reimagining this book, the Helen Gurley Brown book. Um, it came out in May of 2022, and there's a lot of good stuff in there that covers a lot of the topics that we're going to be talking about in our conversation here, but in more depth. So everyone should read that. But you should listen to us first. Um, here's a summary of this book. The Helen Gurley Brown book is, um, she's giving advice to single women about how to live glamorous, interesting lives, and some of that has to do with lifestyle choices around clothes and food and jobs, but a lot of it has to do directly with sex and how to attract men, which ones to sleep with. Um, she has a lot of very specific advice, including the exact recipes to use when your boyfriend is coming over for dinner. Um, and we'll also talk about the recipes that she suggests when your boyfriend is not coming over when you're alone. So onto our conversation. This book, it was fascinating to read, I thought, because it's something that I've heard about, and it's obviously been such a huge influence on the culture in one way or another. Uh, but then actually reading, like, what does Helen Gurley Brown actually say in this book? In some ways, it wasn't what I was expecting. And in some ways, it was so exactly what I was expecting, just because it's been in one way or another rewritten over and over and over my entire life, you know? Um, so how did you come to this first? Um, Brie, I'll ask you the question first. Uh, like, what was your relationship to this book and what was it like reading it uh, this time? Yeah, so I, um, I first started when I was a teenager and I still, I think I probably found it at the thrift store. I was really into thrift shopping and I I have this like really kind of like sense memory of the pink kind of crumbling cover and the, and the like yellowed 
kind of brittle paperback pages that were like falling out as I read them. Um, so yeah, I, I read it in high school and I, um, I had this kind of simultaneous, uh, like fascination and being kind of like too cool for it, just sort of like, sort of, you know, like it was the nineties and I was not interested in being a Cosmo girl. And I was way more interested in like grunge and, you know, things that were not, not really like Helen Gurley brands, um, brand. Um, so I was sort of like feeling superior to it, but I was also just like really kind of like swept up in it. She has like a very like bossy authoritative style where she's just like, all right, we're just kind of like, I'm just going to tell you how it's going to be. Um, like the super energetic, like camp counselor or something. And I was just sort of like found myself both resistant and kind of like feeling ironic about it. And then also just kind of being like, wait a minute, like she seems to like, you know, know what she's talking about. And so I think like as a teenager, I was like kind of enjoying it as like a retro kitsch thing and kind of like, maybe she does know the secret to like, you know, adult life. I mean, since you mentioned grunge, I just wanted to say that like in the nineties, I was also very interested in grunge. Like that was also very appealing to me. And then now looking back on it from a distance of time and reading this book, she's not, not talking about grunge. It's like grunge was also part of the same culture in a way, you know, like it felt at the time, at least to me, it felt like I'm, I'm, I reject Helen Gurley Brown and I embrace, you know, Courtney Love but um Courtney Love definitely would say things like you know um as soon as I lost weight and got a nose job everyone started paying attention to me like I remember those interviews where she was just like yeah she was definitely kind of and like buying old Francis Farmer vintage glam dresses and just kind of like she seemed to be kind of unapologetically um yeah, like re-embodying certain kinds of um, femininity from from an earlier era. Exactly. And it's like, even if you're, it's like an ironic engagement with the patriarchy, it's like, you're still doing it. Yeah. And that, that's kind of, it's like, even though it's, it's like the irony of this book is like, she's like, I'm the boss because I engage so completely with the patriarchy on its own terms. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm rewarded for it. Anyway, so how about you, Samantha? What, how did you come to this book? And what was it oh, like reading it now? Goodness. So I, you know, I read I read it for the first time shortly before writing my essay for the anthology. And I sort of discovered Helen Gurley Brown in reverse. So I'm a out trans woman. I came out in 2012. And um the way that I was familiar with Helen Gurley Brown was is the longtime, you know, editor in chief of Cosmo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like many trans women are going through this like baby phase when they first come out where they're trying to figure out like what kind of like femininity do I like or what does it even mean to like, you know, embody womanhood in the world, right? And so like coming from like a totally clueless like ex-Mormon like sheltered perspective I thought like oh I should like read some cosmopolitan magazines and like figure this out and of course um the archetype of femininity and cosmo is just one small 
sliver, and I would argue a very like unrealistic sliver of like femininity in the world as it's like practiced and actually embodied. Um, so like I was very familiar with like the world that Helen Gurley Brown created, and then to go back and read the book for you know this anthology was like totally eye-opening. Like you said, it was exactly what you expect and also like not what you expect. Yeah. Like yeah. It's so smart, but it's also so regressive in other ways. Yeah. Um one of the things that really struck me in the essay that you wrote for uh for Sex and the Single Woman, the the new book, was this idea that everyone is supposed to be the gender police all the time. That like that one of your jobs as a woman is to detect who is hiding their gayness from you like which yeah you know you you sort of pull out this phrase like what man is not a, a man um and that's uh like actually before we started recording um brie and i were talking about like things that i've noticed in doing all of these um reading all these 20th century books and doing all these podcast episodes on 20th century texts and one of the that's like one of the things that comes up over and over is this idea that like self-identification is somehow not good enough that everyone has to kind of like do freudian psychoanalysis on each other all the time to figure out like well what is this person really all about um and it seems like such a 20th century idea like it's not just helen Gurley brown but she definitely sort of says a few of the quiet parts loud, really loud. Like she says a few things very directly that feel like they're kind of in the air through a lot of books, like, which is sort of like this idea that your identity is partly something that you have access to yourself. And it's partly something that everyone else can see more clearly than you can see about yourself. Somebody else is always doing detective work on what you're really doing and why. And I, I thought that that was an interesting part of this, like, it's like this ideal woman that you're supposed to be in her assessment. You don't have a lot of money, but you're always faking it. You know, you're always like shopping sales and you have excellent taste. So nobody can tell that your furniture is lousy and, but your proportions are so good because you're always dieting. But when your guests come over, you're feeding them this amazing food that you cook perfectly, even though it was cheap. Right. Like it's like constantly this um, negotiation between sort of hiding the truth of your existence, which is often like ceaseless labor. And then showing this surface that is um, kind of sparklingly fun. Mm -hmm. I feel like if anything, that's like still with us today and like influencer culture and lifestyle yeah. blogging of this like elision of your own like actual lived reality to present this very like glossy plasticine surface yeah yeah and it must be like some part of culture always you know like to but it's at the same time it, it seems like really like of a very certain time and place, how much she foregrounds that, like you are absolutely only going to be eating cottage cheese and drinking white wine. That's it. Oh, and steak, <laughs> steak. Like what's the diet she gives? 
It's like white wine for breakfast. Um, but then when your guests come over, you're going to give them both fruit and chocolate cake. Yeah. Because that'll make them feel decadent. I feel like it's about, as you're saying, it's like, so part of it is like being uh, kind of like mastering the rules of gender. And part of it is about, a lot of it is about class, like a huge part of it is about class, which you're also foregrounding. And this idea that somehow, well, partly, you know, like so much of the motivation, like in an almost Jane Austen way is to try to like if you can kind of like learn the rules of society well enough and perform your place in it well enough, then you will be rewarded by like, you know, some, um, some kind of like romantic story that is also a story of class mobility. Um, So that was her own, that's her own story about herself. And that's also what she's like offering her readers. Um, But then also this idea that like somehow learning how not to be tacky (laughs) is sort of like a thing that will give you this kind of like new cultural capital or like open up career possibilities for you or open up romantic possibilities for you. So it's sort of about like learning the rules so that like you can shed your, your class background and like rise. And that's like a lot of what she's offering. Um, That's so so true. Yeah. That's a really great point. And that's part of one of the things about it that's like uneasy about like obviously she assumes that everyone she's speaking to is white Mm -hmm. um she definitely is not willing to open up that possibility of mobility beyond cis white girls who are straight Mm -hmm. yeah and there's also something kind of even though she does allow some mobility for those people like there's something really dehumanizing about i think how she thinks about men it's like women have these qualities beyond their jobs and those qualities have to do with like, you know, constant hustle, but um, they are people. Yeah. Um, like men, the, men are dupes basically. <laughs> they're just dupes and they're just, they're kind of just reduced to their jobs. Like, yeah. Like yeah, how good of a man is he? It's like, well, how good, how much money does he earn? That's how good he is as a man. She talks to the reader like, She's like a hunter going on safari or something like that, which like, you know, you know what place that comes from. Like, it's like to her, it must have felt like, oh, we're taking our power back and we're going to like play the game now. We're going to get in the mix. Um, But ultimately, if you like flip the dialectic, it's like still a dialectic, you know, like you're you're still caught on the same board game. You're not like flipping all the pieces off the table, which, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like, it, it almost seems like a vision of liberation that she sees this distinction between the person and the job they hold mm-hmm. if it's an attractive young woman, but that's because there's this possibility that she could become a wife of somebody who has a better job. So it's like, maybe she's a secretary, but she could, if she has the qualities of a you know ceo's wife right then that's like that she has mobility through some other way other than like getting a promotion and so there's like this moment where it's like oh you you're kind of seeing something beyond hustle culture that you're like no no you're not you're not actually like you don't actually have a more human humanistic vision of our potential 
I think something that I that I go back and forth about a lot when I'm thinking about her and her project, which I think is part of what you're speaking to, is like that like fuzzy line between the way she is descriptive and prescriptive, the way she's just sort of saying like, this is actually just the way things are. So I'm going to give you the tools to navigate how things are. There are these, all of these like structures, um, you know, where men, men have the power and the money and women don't, you know, that's, and so I'll tell you like how to navigate that. And I think that like, there's a way that I think it's something that makes it so like uncomfortable to read and hard to just kind of like easily dismiss is the fact that like, that is like, just, that's just, that was the truth, you know, <laughs> like women couldn't get credit cards. Like they didn't have, like, they didn't have, um, you know, name a right. They probably <laughs> didn't, um, didn't have it. Or even just things like, um, I mean, we're obviously recording this on, um, the day that Roe is officially struck down. But um, yeah, it's sort of like what it means to kind of be where she's just part of her, part of what she's doing is just saying like in this like world where all of the resources are in control, in the control of men, like what do you need to do to like get some of them? Um, But then there's part of it, the part of it where she's like, but this is actually fun, you know, or this is actually like speaks to like your, your um, true femininity, where it's just, that's the part where it starts to get um, more uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's all uncomfortable, but yeah, where she's like, you should be enjoying this, like the safari, the hunt. (laughs) It's like, really? Yeah, it's definitely like a vision of femininity that's like very active mm-hmm. and high energy. Yeah, it's very unfair because you're like you're you are living entirely on cottage cheese, and yet you have to like maintain such a high energy level at all times. <laughs> so enthusiastic and sparkly. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the hardest things about rereading it today. Is like she seems to be having such a great time and I I do not know like anyone of any gender navigating like their 20s and dating an early career who who is like having a fabulous time of it uh in the last decade yeah I think that concept of fun is one that um it's almost like the way that people had like from the 1920s onward, the way people could describe the fact that there was this new kind of woman in the world, which is like a woman with an intellectual career. Um, and that, that, and, and so they're like, well, we don't want to necessarily describe her in a way like she's not threateningly powerful. She's not like, how do we describe those women? And it seems like fun is like flappers, um, uh, women in go-go boots, women um, in mini skirts, women with sunglasses, uh, bikinis. Like th- these are all ways of describing the kind of femininity that came up in the 20th century that came along with women having this single, a, a patch of life where they're expected to be single and adult and they're expected to have maybe an office job or some kind of job. They're expected to maybe not live at home with their parents they're expected to go on dates, like all of that started in the 1920s. And it seems like that, like every generation has some new way of being um, surprised by it. Does that sound right to you? Like, 
like in some ways this book seems so radical and in some ways it's only being shocked by things that people were shocked by consistently for the last like 40 four decades before it was published does that seem right i'm sorry i hope i'm saying something that makes sense i, I feel like it makes sense i feel like as you're talking part of me feels like um Part of me feels like in some ways it is like this much older thing like Jane Austen, where it's just like the performance, the marriage market was always about the performance of fun. Like you're going to these dances that are essentially work for you. You're having to kind of perform potential wifehood in front of people in order to kind of like lock that down and get materially taken care of. And you do that by seeming like by perfecting your ability to kind of like be a fun conversationalist and like, <clears throat> you know, play the harpsichord or whatever. Sorry. Yeah. So, so I think in some ways that this kind of performance of fun that you need to do in order to kind of like uh, achieve material stability for yourself is like pretty old, but the, the idea yeah. that like you're doing it as an independent agent more, you know, like that you're doing it like what, you know, while supporting yourself or like having an apartment, like that is definitely like a 20th century thing. That's totally new. Um, yeah. And I think like I was looking up 1920s dating guides because I was actually really curious. <laughs> it's like, which parts of this actually are new? Like it's definitely yeah. new that she's saying you should fully be having sex with married men and they should be producing orgasms for you. Like that's, that seems pretty radical probably um but i mean people started going on dates and like i mean that was like the 1920s before then i think it was more normal to do like courtship through family connections and in your parlor or your like front porch or something for most classes of people that then started going on dates and going out dancing and like that kind of thing i think there was a cultural shift about that like necking in cars mm -hmm. I think right yeah. um and so so I was like some of this stuff feels like like it's not actually all that new it's only um new that she's kind of saying it out loud yeah I, I feel like a lot of self-help literature is kind of at once very much of its time but also like totally unmoored from time and that there's no like citationality you know like every new book is like and I personally have come up with the grand theory to explain everything and to unlock happiness for you and you know all the thousands and thousands of pages that have been written about this topic before like I don't need to reference them I I've got it and Every, they all feel yes. in a way like created ex nihilo, just like here it is. Like I am Helen Gurley Brown. I have distilled my wisdom. It's just born out of my experiences in life and it's here. That's such a good point. Yeah. Like it wouldn't be self-help if she didn't pretend that she had just figured out the key to life <laughs> yesterday. I really like, um, uh, another book that I came across in the thrift store when I was a teenager was the 1930s bestseller Live Alone and Like It, which was sort of like a yeah. kind of like earlier 20th century version of this. And yeah, I read it too. Yeah. Yeah. I really <laughs> I like that one. It, it holds up better than um, Sex and the Single Girl in a lot of ways. 
it has a kind of, um, it's attitude towards sex is a little bit more like don't ask, don't tell, where it's just like, there might be like social repercussions if you have sex outside of marriage, but we're not gonna, you know, like, you know, we're not going to tell you not to sort of, it's just kind of like you're an adult, make your own decision knowing what the deal is. Um, so it's not like celebrating it. Um, but I think that in terms of just sort of seeing like living alone as a kind of end in itself, as opposed to kind of like a means to getting a man. Um, I, I really, the live alone and like it book kind of is speaks to me more as kind of like a guide to like, um, <clears throat> like being a kind of independent, um, single woman long-term as like a goal or just the idea that like, this is something that you might do like after marriage, you know, or like, it's not like the goal is mar- marriage and then that's the ending. It's just sort of like, you know, you create this like single life for yourself instead, or like when you're divorced or widowed and it has like its own value. Um, yeah. And I think that that, that ha- I feel like the Helen Gurley Brown, like kind of instrumentalizing of, of single fun, where it's like a means to some other end is like um, harder to, to fully embrace, at least for me. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that she definitely pretends that she's talking about um, single life as, you know, she's like, oh, your married friends will envy you because you're going to have a million boyfriends. And it's like, it's always like being single is an end in itself but that's because it makes you so attractive to people who will want to date you. Right. It's like, she's kind of always, she always wants it both ways. Yeah. Can we, uh, I don't know if, if you want to talk about this, but this is something that I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on is just her style. Cause I think like when I go back to it, it's the thing that like really seems so distinctive. I mean, it's also sort of like, um, classic women's magazine style of a particular era, but just like the, like the italics, the exclamation marks, the kind of like ridiculous, um, uh, like over the top types of, of, uh, references or comparisons. She's just like, she's writing at such a like high level of intensity and enthusiasm and, um, and like verve, like constantly, um, so I think the style is the thing that like most, uh, like sticks out to me from this book. Um, that's so interesting. Samantha, do you want to talk about this? I don't want to just jump in. No, no. Like I agree. Like I can absolutely hate everything she's saying, but she's saying it so stylishly that I'm like, Ooh, this is like, I'm, I'm like gossiping with you like I'm having fun like we're sharing martinis over like a lunch of not very much food at all and feeling (laughs) faint and woozy and you're like telling me about all your escapades like Carrie Bradshaw could never you know (laughs) is how I feel when I'm reading this yeah except it's like so clearly what it's like the the uh root of of Carrie Bradshaw there's like a consistent style, like you were saying, like women's magazine style, but it feels like there's a lot of overlap with all of these like high energy performance of fun style, kind of like I'm giving you advice and it's going to make your life amazing. And it's like, it's almost like motivational speaker, but I think the Carrie Bradshaw analogy is really useful in terms of thinking about what's distinctive about like what she offers is because 
the like the quintessential Carrie Bradshaw column is like I couldn't help but wonder you know it's sort of like I'm wondering about this phenom you know yeah. <laughs> and like Helen Gurley Brown never wonders she's never like what do I think about this she's just like let me tell you like here, here's what's happening here's how to deal with it like here's how to feel about it it's just like she's never phased nothing phases her um she's never she's never thrown off she's never trying to make sense of something it's just kind of like she's got she's got to take um and so it's like this position of just like incredible uh like um yeah, like incredible, like authority and just like the idea that you're never going to be like shaken or thrown off by, by anything, um, which is like so different than the, than the kind of like more angsty, um, you know, carry vibe. Yeah. I think, I think that's actually, that's a really good point. And I think that maybe the one I'm thinking of from Sex and the City is Samantha, where mm-hmm. she is always like, Samantha is totally a like, cosmo. <laughs> leaning in like let me tell you about this yeah. peculiar form of sex that you've totally. never heard of and it's amazing you all will be doing it next week and it's like that's like Helen Gurley Brown's tone yeah. you do oh. a great Kim Cattrall Im- impersonation <laughs> that was an excellent Samantha <laughs> if I had actually thought of some form of sex that we'll all be doing next week that would have been better <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's intensely charismatic when someone has all the answers, like, you know, it's how cults are formed, right? It's like someone who's just like, you don't need to think about it. I've got it. Just sit here, listen to me. And you can kind of like switch your brain off and surrender your consciousness to somebody. Um, Yeah. And I think that there's an overlap with diet culture in there where it's like, you can be anyone, but as long as you're thin, you're pretty enough. Um, and that there's like that kind of big tentness of the cult that's like, small tent. um, what I said, or a small tent, just depending. Oh, exactly. yeah. <laughs> but it's like, it'll embrace you, you yeah. know, no matter what you look like, yeah. as long as you have only had white wine for breakfast, you are glamorous, you know, you potentially have, you deserve this kind of glamorous, uh, life that she's talking about but also being hungry all the time means that you're hungry all the time and you're like you literally don't think about anything but food um and exactly how much you're allowed to eat um and i i think that those two things at the same time also they add up to something very culty that part is like just the such a painful part to read now I think because you know I have like a 96 year old grandmother who still will be like oh like I lost a pound this week or something and I'm just like you're 96 like just have cake (laughs) so I think that there's a kind of um the just realizing like how how deeply um unquestioningly enforced the this aspect of the um this book was for so long you know like she's participating in something that predates her um but it's and it obviously continued after it's not just her but it's just like it was it's so 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 deep in the culture um and even though now people are like hesitant to like to say it out loud in the same way, or like they pay lip service to other things. Like it's still, 
kind of like there just below the surface and as lethal as it ever was. Um, so that's like really, really hard to, to see. I found it really hard also. Um, partly cause I, you know, like every woman, I assume, <laughs> um, have had experiences with, you know, just thinking like, Oh, I can figure this out. I can, if I just do this exactly right, then I will have the, um, you know, the increase in power and status that I would get from being very thin. Um, and I would also be able to, you know, keep my mental power and I would be able to keep my ability to feel pleasure, you know, like all of these different things. Like, like if I just walk this very specific line and then I'm like, no, you absolutely lose your power in one way to gain the power in the other way. There is not a way to be both fully invested in diet culture and also be a full strength human being who is able to experience the whole, you know, breadth of enjoyment. Yeah. Like who is going to enjoy all this sex she's encouraging you to have if you feel like you're going to like pass out walking up a flight of stairs to like the dude's apartment, you know? Like she describes the thinness that you're supposed to achieve in order to feel sexy. And then she's like, but not really, because actually anyone who feels sexy is sexy. And it's like, thanks, Helen Gurley Brown. We know what you really mean. And it's extremely thin that she's talking about. Yeah. I mean, she she personally, uh, um, you know, practiced what she preached. And it is it's it is kind of painful to think about, like, what it means to be so invested in and not nourishing yourself for, for that many decades, but she really was fierce about it till the very end. She was never gonna, she's never gonna waver. She was never gonna like, um, have seconds. Yeah. Um, I I mean, I believe that she was committed to it. I just, it's like, I don't think that she necessarily could be serious about how much she would be giving up. It is kind of remarkable how much she sticks by it. I forget which edition it was that she wrote like a new forward for, but there are some like token gestures to the way the world has changed. But by and large, she's like, I got it right the first time. Like, yeah, Yeah. she's like, technically lesbians exist, I guess, but nothing that I say could be useful to them. And I'm like, lucky lesbians. (laughs) (laughs) um but then I think, I, sorry oh I was just gonna say I think that like a big part of what I liked about it and this is this is like related to the diet culture aspect but I don't think it it's um I think there's like parts of it that are maybe like less um uh dangerous um but it's just like what it means to kind of think about like almost every aspect of your life as this blank slate potentially where you could just sort of create something like whether it's the way that she talks about like decorating an apartment or like your body is like, um, you know, your body is something that can be like turned into this, like you put wigs on it, you put makeup on it. You like you, it's all about embracing the artifice you know, she's like, I don't believe in natural beauty. And then like the way that she thinks about like all of these different aspects of your life, whether it's like your work life or your home life or whatever, that's about kind of like creating this, um, 
yeah, just sort of like embracing the artifice of, of daily life, like seeing it all as something that can be like, kind of like created, um, figured out, um, using your apartment as some kind of like stage set, um, or, or like spider web trap or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, I think the thing that struck me about that was just, I mean, I mentioned it before, like the one thing that she thinks is inexhaustible for everyone is energy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably her experience. Like she looks, you know, she's always doing like a ta-da kind of gesture and photos, you know? I am sure she was, I'm sorry, I should. I should. Oh, sure. <laughs> okay, yeah. like I shouldn't say I'm sure. I would not be surprised if she were on a lot of speed. Like no, it would I, just, yes. <laughs> also assume that there was some <laughs> kind of like artificial stimulants in there for the amount of energy that she is expecting out of herself and out of her Cosmo girls there's different ways that people's lives are not a blank slate. Right. And like the, the ones that I felt very sensitive to had to do with like how she just assumes boundless energy and good health. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, but that's not everyone's normal, you know? Okay. Um, and like, she understands that some people will not be beautiful. And she's like, okay, if you have enough energy, you can overcome that. And I'm like, well, but maybe you don't have enough energy. Yeah. It's like, if you're not a natural, like all of the things that if you're not a natural beauty, that just means you have to work harder. It doesn't mean you can be like, phew, like I'm outside of the beauty economy. I could just like live my ugly life in peace. No, you just have to work harder. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, like all of these, all of the ways that you're not naturally advantaged just become ways that you have to like compensate through this expenditure of like knowledge, energy, um, you know, enthusiasm, performance, et cetera. It sounds exhausting. Um, And like you go to work and then you're like going to parties all the time. And then I I don't know, there's no Helen Gurley Brown advice. That's like, there's no self-care in here. There's no take a night for yourself to eat popcorn in your pajamas. It's like, always be climbing, always be hungry, always be on the lookout for the next available. Yeah. Like if you're at home, her idea of what you do at home is to do like exercises to make sure that you have like a youthful neck. Samantha, something I really loved about your essay in sex and the single woman was the way you're just sort of talking about how, um, in a, in a economy that people are living in now where this like work is taking up more and more of people's life and like the idea of just kind of like adding all of this additional um labor or it's just like people have less less and less energy for this kind of thing and then essentially what she's describing is like a kind of like whole second job which is just kind of like personal maintenance and performance and so I felt like you're kind of talking about like the the economic context and like the of um in which we're kind of like reading self-help now. It's just, uh, it would be one thing if we had like nine to fives with like good benefits or something. And we just kind of like had all of this time when we got home to, to do nothing except like, you know, work on ourselves, but that's not the reality for most people. Um, yeah. If I could shut my laptop at 5 PM and be like, and now the game begins. Like, <laughs> Sure. But like, no, like I shut my laptop at 5 p.m. and I think about like how I'm paying bills and where the next 
check is coming from and, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, I wonder how much she would consider like social media to be that second job that is all about performance of sort of a fun, glamorous identity um, that, that needs to always be constructed. Like, I wonder if she would be kind of horrified by kind of the world now as an extreme of what she's suggesting. Oh God. You also just invoked a nightmare image of her, like coaching you how to have a good Instagram presence of just like, people don't like it when you don't look fresh. So (laughs) wake up every morning and douse your face in ice cold water before you take your first selfie. You know, I don't know. Totally. She would be all, she, she would be great on Twitter. She would be like, she would be, yeah. Um, she was like built for built for social media performance. So one thing, like a, a book that we did for this um, this podcast earlier, that's kind of in the same genre to my mind is Valley of the Dolls. Like in some ways, talking about like this really extreme, campy form of um, feminine performance. Um, and one thing about that book that I didn't expect at all was how um gleefully it seemed like the book wanted to punish the characters for their ambition or their desire to seek pleasure and i really did not feel that way about this book i felt like she has a kind of punishing hustle culture mindset but that she also like i think it authentically is the world that she lived in like i think that she truly lived among people who thought that way she succeeded by thinking that way financially to you know she she did get out of poverty by kind of exhaustively studying these mindset and habits of of richer people and making her spider web apartment right. and everything um i think she's telling the truth as she knows it and I don't think she hates her readers. That was my th- thought anyway. Does that seem right to you? I think that if, I think that as long as you're willing to get with her program, yeah, she will support you. If you're like, you know what? I'm just gonna like, you know, wear a loose fitting caftan and, um, <clears throat> you know, like, uh let myself go I think she's just like you deserve nothing you know (laughs) like um yeah 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 and I think that maybe it would be like fear of what would happen if she had failed in her social mobility quest that would be like that that would be the root of her repulsion against a person who is not sort of on all the time she also would not I think Anytime, I mean, as you as you said earlier in our conversation, there are so many people for whom these rules just simply would not work. You know, whether it's because of race, whether it's because of um, like all, a whole host of things, where it's like people who have like um, ability or whatever. There are like all these reasons why her rules are not going to be applicable. And I think for those people, I think that she, um, I don't think. I think that she 
she, she does have this kind of big tent thing where it's just like, as long as you're kind of like with her program, like she, she's like rooting for you, but I think she doesn't really have any, um, like any empathy or interest in people for whom this, this particular like program doesn't, doesn't work or can't work. I mean, I could be wrong. I completely agree with you. No, I completely agree. I picture it like the end of Devil Wears Prada where like, um, Meryl Streep sees Andy from across the street and is like slight smile, turn around, walk away, like back to her glamorous life. (laughs) Um, Thinking with like, with Valley of the Dolls, which of course is like really cruel to its characters, but um, it's, it's a text that I have really enjoyed both in, in like reading and, and movie form yeah. is that there's a kind of um, like Helen Gurley Brown is all about success and Valley of the Dolls is really about kind of aestheticized um, failure. You know, that's not, that's not all it is, but it just sort of like the kind of like really um, dramatizing, like, uh, heartbreak, career failure, early death, addiction, you know, like, um, I think that there's a way that there's the world that it's describing, it's giving a lot of attention to, to the opposite of success (laughs) or like, definitely. Or like they succeeded in this one narrow way, but every single other thing about their life is a punishing shambles. Yes. You know, so it's like success, but at what cost? Yes. So Um, I think, that has i uh obviously that's like very like cruel and and troubling in its way but it also it means that there's like a lot of scope for it to like kind of deal with issues that the world of of sex and the single girl couldn't really um deal with that's true yeah yeah exactly like she only has one direction which is up yeah. Like what if you get all of these things and then you're still like miserable and like <laughs> addicted to speed or whatever. And like, <laughs> you know, she doesn't really, there's not really a, a possibility for someone to play by and win by her rules and then have it like, and still have a life that's unsatisfying or, um, or like tragic or. You're or totally fun. right. Jacqueline Suzanne is there. If you <laughs> If you get to that point. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I don't think anyone in Sex and the Single Girl has aging parents or any kind of family obligation. Right. It's like either you have toddlers with toys and thus you are gross because you're a wife or you're a glamorous, hot, single girl. And those are the only kinds of obligations that people can have. Yeah. It's just like a very narrow slice of life, even though she claims this is something that could still be a, a book that could guide somebody who's not 25. It really right. feels like she's just talking about a very, very narrow slice of both the population and also um, each of those women's lives. There is probably like more to be thought about in relation to her um imagining a life without children um, for women um, that is more unusual. I mean, in the fact that yeah. she, she lived that life and that she also wrote about that life. Um, that's probably one of the kind of like 
um, just as much as like the, the emphasis on like sex, (laughs) the kind of like, you know, just sort of setting aside the whole issue of, of children, I think is like, just, just as radical. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, I agree with you. Yeah. It's one of those ways in which she can be so progressive, like in some aspects, like there are parts of it that definitely surprise you, like even amid all the homophobia and racism and stuff. Yeah. There's like, there's still stuff to chew on in there. Yeah, I agree. Right. That's our episode on Sex and the Single Girl. Thank you so much to Samantha and Briellen and to Adam Bear for our music, as well as everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us. As always, we love to hear from listeners. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, tweet to us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter, or email us at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, and goodbye till next month. <laughs>